Okay, I know you guys are incredibly busy, so let's, um, why don't we go ahead and get started. I think most of you are here. I wouldn't normally have a, a Bible study this time of year because with all the tests and everything going on, but just as I'm looking forward to May, uh, we'll never get through Revelation unless we just keep going. So that's why we're having one today, even with everything else going on. All right, so let's pray as we begin. Father, thank you so much that you love and care for each one of us here. Please, um, during this time, help us to think about you, to come closer to you, strengthen our trust in you, improve our picture and who you are, and uh, may this bring uh, peace and security to uh, these, uh, the next week and a half that's ahead. In your name we pray, amen. All right, today the book of Luke. What do we know about Luke? Not a whole lot, but uh, if we skip forward to Colossians, of course, Luke traveled around with Paul, and we read that Luke, our dear doctor, and Demas send you their greetings. So Luke was a physician. And one other interesting thing here, the very end of Paul's life, he's just about to uh, surrender his life. And Paul would write, As for me, the hour has come for me to be sacrificed. The time is here for me to leave this life. And then he goes on to say, Only Luke is with me. So Luke and Paul um, traveled together. Um, some people, uh, there's a theory that perhaps Hebrews was uh, written by Luke. Um, I don't know, I think it probably was written by Paul, but uh, maybe Luke was involved. And when you consider the length of the books of Luke and Acts, and really these books belong together, they're Luke-Acts. Uh, Luke wrote a lot of the New Testament. And along with um, John and of course Paul, these are the major writers just in terms of volume, of the New Testament. And so there's some interesting things about Luke here, a physician. Some people have suggested, well, Luke was more accurate, more uh, historical, uh, perhaps, in his gospel. I love the way it starts out, which should appeal to us who are perhaps approaching things on more of an evidence-based uh, approach, where Luke 1.1, 1, 1, Dear Theophilus, many people have done their best to write a report of the things that have taken place among us. They wrote what we have been told by those who saw these things from the beginning and who proclaimed the message. And so, Your Excellency, because I have carefully studied all these matters from their beginning, I thought it would be good to write an orderly account to you. I do this so that you will know the full truth about everything which you have been taught. So Luke really researched this. He tried to make it accurate with all the evidence and tools available to him. And so he wrote this um, accurate account. And uh, not to make a big deal of this, it's certainly not important, but it is kind of interesting that when we read uh, Mark, Jesus is quoted as saying this, it is like this, a man takes a mustard seed, the smallest seed in the world, and plants it in the ground. Uh, is the mustard seed the smallest seed in the world? Uh, no, it isn't. And it's just interesting, again, not a big deal, but uh, Luke would say, it is like a tiny mustard seed and a man planted in a garden. He doesn't go so far as to call it the smallest seed in the world. Again, not a big deal, but one just wonders if uh, perhaps Luke said, hold on, that's not the smallest seed. Did Jesus really say that? And uh, so his description is just a little bit different. Okay, a bunch of little isolated stories here and there in Luke. Um, there are a couple major points I want to make uh, in this Bible study, but here's just an isolated point. I love this description in Luke 9, where Jesus was rejected. But the people would not welcome or receive or accept him because his face was set as if he was going to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, observed this, they said, Lord, do you wish us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? 
That was Jesus' response. But he turned and rebuked and severely censured them. He said, You do not know what sort of spirit you are, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And so they journeyed on to another village. Again, I think we that uh, take the label as uh, Christians, um, again, Christ is our final authority. And so... um, We certainly do not have authority from Christ to call down fire on our enemies. Remember, Jesus would say, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but now I tell you, love your enemies. Okay, so Christians really should be known as, uh, no, we we follow the example of Jesus Christ. This is how we treat our enemies. We don't call down fire from heaven on them. Uh, Now, this is why we have spent a long time on the Old Testament discussing why did that ever happen? Why was there ever a time for things like that? We're not going to go into it now, but again, that is certainly not the ideal. Jesus Christ is the ideal, and as Christians, we're to follow the ideal and not wish for the worst on our enemies, but rather to uh, deal with them in a Christ-like way. Okay, here's uh, probably my favorite story in the Gospel of Luke. This is after Jesus was resurrected, and we have this story of the Emmaus Road. I, I just think this is really important for us. So on that same day, two of Jesus' followers were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about all the things that had happened. As they talked and discussed, Jesus himself drew near and walked along with them. They saw him, but somehow did not recognize him. And this is what I want us to consider. Uh, Why didn't they recognize Jesus? And why would Jesus appear in a way that they didn't recognize him? Well, Well, we'll try to answer that just as we read the story. Jesus said to them, what are you talking about to each other as you walk along? Okay, did he not know? Sure he did, but he asked them. They stood still with sad faces. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have been happening there these last few days? What things, he asked. I mean, is Jesus here. He's uh, disguised himself, asks as if he doesn't know, and then says, uh, Well, what things are you talking about? Well, the things that happened to Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. This man was a prophet and was considered by God and by all the people to be powerful in everything he said and did. Our chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and he was crucified. And we had hoped that he would be the one who was going to set Israel free. Besides all that, this is now the third day since it happened. And uh, perhaps they're remembering um, here three days later, Jesus' words that he would be resurrected. So, Anyway, here's the question. Why would Jesus maintain a disguise? And if you were Jesus in this circumstance, and um, hey, here's uh, these people, they're discouraged, what would you do? I mean, imagine that he had just suddenly, his face lit up like on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, I mean, wouldn't they have been rejoicing? You know, he's resurrected. Uh, Why did he maintain his disguise? Well, let's keep reading on. Then Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, how slow you are to believe everything the prophets said. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and then to enter his glory? And Jesus explained to them what was said about himself in all the scriptures. Don't you wish we had this Bible study recorded? He went through the whole Bible and recorded everything that was said that pointed to to him as the Messiah, beginning with the books of Moses and the writings of the prophets. Okay, so he did a little Bible study for those men, but they didn't know who he was. 
And as they came near the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. Isn't it interesting how many times he pretended he did this, but uh, that wasn't his real intent. But they held him back, saying, Stay with us. The day is almost over, and it is getting dark. So he went in to stay with them. He sat down to eat with them, took the bread, and said the blessing. Then he broke the bread and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened. And some have suggested, hmm, maybe they saw the nail scars in his palms. Who knows? But somehow their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. And here's what's real interesting. They said to each other, wasn't it like a fire burning in us when he talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? Notice, when did the fire burn within them? It was before they even knew who he was, right? It was the, the evidence. They, didn't, they hadn't interpreted their Old Testament correctly. And they had not read the Old Testament in pointing to a God who was like Jesus. They hadn't understood that his mission, that he would die, that he'd be resurrected. And so as they began to understand and say, yes, that fits, that fits, that's right, then this fire was burning within them. And so they got up at once and went back to Jerusalem where they found the 11 disciples gathered together with the others and saying, the Lord is risen indeed. Okay, here's what I think is the the take-home point from this story. Um, Jesus could have convinced them that he'd been resurrected. I mean, he could, could have not disguised himself and said, look, it's me. Okay, they would, would they not have rejoiced? Certainly they would have rejoiced. But that is not the way that God wants to work, I think, with each one of us. He wants us to be convinced based on evidence that appeals to the reason, not just show of force, miracles, signs, wonders. I mean, even the testimony of his own physical presence. It was much more important to Jesus that they understood And once they understood, then he revealed who he was. Okay, so it is evidence. And I think, um, you know, we often make this very false distinction, I think, which is medicine, evidence-based. Religion, faith-based. And faith somehow uh, can be described as a leap in the dark. Well, we certainly don't use evidence when it comes to asking questions about God. We certainly don't require evidence or when we read the Bible, uh, we take it by faith. And um, I, I don't think we should make that uh, description. I mean, just imagine if we did medicine this way. So, for example, we talked uh, recently about a lot of drugs. And uh, when I told you about sumatriptan for migraines, if I just said, hey, just have faith, it works. Don't understand, uh, it just, it works. Don't you trust me? Um, I mean, no, you want to understand. When you see how it works, that makes sense appeals to the reason, you know, you get settled into an understanding of these things. Uh, Should physicians here at Loma Linda practice medicine based on, well, let's say a patient comes into the ER with severe abdominal pain, and you go in to evaluate that patient, and uh, maybe you interrupt the patient 30 seconds into the description of the abdominal pain, and you just say, hold on, I'm getting a strong impression now, I think this is what we're dealing with, and we better go right off to the operating room, because I think you have uh, maybe this problem. I mean, how would a patient feel under that circumstance? And then maybe you say, well, don't you have faith? I mean, this is Loma Linda. We're a faith-based institution. We don't need evidence. Um, Is that what faith means? I mean, no, what doesn't the patient, they don't need to understand everything, but doesn't the patient want to hear, hey, this doctor, they did a CT of my abdomen. They did all these tests. They're showing me the pictures, which I don't really understand, but they're pointing to this thing in my abdomen. It makes sense. I trust this doctor. Look at all the time he spent with me. Now I'm ready for surgery. Okay, so the patient, uh, again, it's appealed to their reason, and it makes sense. 
And I think it is really the same approach that we should have to our study of Scripture. Yeah, we all have lots of questions, but I think God invites our questions. He's happy if we ask the questions, and I think prayerfully if we ask the questions as we read the Bible, um, God is, uh, is delighted to give us evidence that appeals to our reason uh, so that we really have a true faith. And here are a couple of verses that I love on faith. Um, when we went through Bible translation, I talked about the, uh, the Weymouth uh, New Testament, 1912, 1913, but it's a great translation of Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is a well-grounded assurance of that for which we hope and a conviction of the reality of things which we do not see. New King James, now faith is the substance. I mean, that's something you can hold on to of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Okay, we should demand evidence um, and we should look for evidence. I think there's lots of evidence there. Okay, so again, uh, faith is not a leap in the dark. It is evidence and God is providing lots of evidence, I think, if we're in search of it. For example, I mean, couldn't God cure atheism in one hour? Let's just say that, uh, I don't know, some bright being 30 feet tall appeared in downtown Los Angeles today and did lots of miracles and, uh, I mean, undeniable. And it's on CNN. I mean, the whole world knows within a day. Uh, would there be an atheist? I mean, couldn't God just immediately, everyone believes in a God? Okay, why doesn't God do that? Well, I think we get some insights here into from this story on the road to Emmaus. I mean, God does not want to uh, intimidate us or scare us into the kingdom. In fact, that doesn't work. Um, and again, the issue is not, does God exist? Okay, lots of people have believed in the existence of God, but have had a totally false picture of God. The issue is not, is God bright and powerful? Uh, most religions agree on that fact. The issue is, what is God like? And can you be scared into believing what God is like? Remember, Jesus came. Eternal life is to know God. He came to reveal not just that uh, God is a powerful uh, super being, but he came to reveal what he's like in character. And that's essentially what it's all about. Um, I had a real interesting experience last week. Uh, I have a uh, Mondays at noon a Bible study with School of uh, Public Health and Allied Health. And uh, this last week, a, a student who was uh, not a Christian uh, came to the Bible study for the first time and uh, came up afterwards uh, and was rather uh, agitated. And uh, basically this was his problem and he was quoting me in, in what he said. And basically what he said was, there is no way that the Almighty God would become a human. There's no way he'd spend nine months in the womb. There's no way he would spend his first night in a feeding trough. Uh, there's no way he would hang out with tax collectors and prostitutes. Uh, there is no way he would wash the feet of Judas and there is no way that he would allow his own children to crucify him. And that was so incredibly offensive. And what I found amazing is just his description, which was pretty close to what I just said. I mean, to me, that's the essence of the good news. It's the essence of the unique message that we have as Christians, that our God is just like that. Okay, so again, it's not denying that God is powerful or that he's infinite. I mean, he's infinitely powerful. The, the issue is that the infinitely powerful one is just like Jesus in all of those ways. And that, that I think, is the essence of the message uh, that we're trying to get out. Maybe just one more story to point to evidence. 
as what God is always trying to reveal, to convince us in our minds. Once we're settled into the truth, then all the, the things with the miracles and power and all of that, I mean, truth, evidence, that is actually more important. For example, we have to go to Matthew for this. When John the Baptist heard in prison about the things that Christ was doing, he sent some of his disciples to tell him, or, or to him, to ask a question. Tell us, they asked Jesus, are you the one John said was going to come, or should we expect someone else? And I think we can be sympathetic with John here because, um, I mean, if you've been the one to announce the coming of the Messiah, and he's here, he's doing around, he's talking, he's doing miracles, uh, then why am I in prison? Uh, why, didn't, uh, why doesn't he come and release me, do some miracles? I don't know, but it would seem like uh, there was some doubt. And again, notice the way that Jesus uh, answered this question. Jesus answered, Go back and tell John what you are hearing and seeing, which is this. The blind can see, the lame can walk, those who suffer from dreaded skin diseases are made clean, the deaf hear, the dead are brought back to life, and the good news is preached to the poor. How happy are those who have no doubts about me? Okay, here's again what I find interesting. Uh, yes, Jesus pointed to the miracles he was doing, but this passage in Matthew, it's a direct quote from several passages in Isaiah. So just to point to one of them in Isaiah 29, when that day comes, the deaf will be able to hear a book being read aloud and the blind who have been living in darkness will open their eyes and see. Poor and humble people will once again find the happiness which the Lord, the Holy God of Israel gives uh, there are other verses in Isaiah that Jesus quoted here in this little answer. Again, what was Jesus doing? Did, did John the Baptist, was he ignorant of the Bible? I mean, no, we know his upbringing. Uh, he knew his Bible. And so I think when the, John's disciples came back to him and reported Jesus' answer, uh, John the Baptist said, yes, that is the description of the Messiah. Again, appealed to his reason, evidence. And I think for John, he said, yes, he is the one. And Jesus chose to do that rather than to, at that moment, uh, let me just do something uh, incredibly spectacular to prove my power. He gave John the Baptist some evidence. And again, I think that's more, a more effective, more appealing way. Okay, a couple of other isolated stories here. This is a, a long one, but I think interesting. In Luke 18, Jesus told them a story showing that it was necessary for them to pray consistently and never quit. He said, and now here's our question, which of a judge, how do we apply this to God? He said, there, one, there was once a judge in some city who never gave God a thought and cared nothing for people. A widow in that city kept after him. My rights are being violated. Protect me. He never gave her the time of day. But after this went on and on. He said to himself, I care nothing what God thinks, even less what people think. But because this widow won't quit badgering me, I'd better do something and see that she gets justice. Otherwise, I'm going to end up beaten black and blue by her pounding. Then the master said, Do you hear what that judge, corrupt as he is, is saying? So what makes you think God won't step in and work justice for his chosen people who continue to cry out for help? Won't he stick up for them? I assure you he will. He will not drag his feet. But how much of that kind of persistent faith will the Son of Man find on earth when he returns? Okay, so there are two points here. One is... Be like that woman. I mean, be persistent in faith and in prayer. That's the right attitude. I think the other point is, I mean, why Jesus went out of the way to describe this judge who doesn't believe anything in God, that God is not the polar opposite of that judge. 
Okay, and we sometimes imagine, boy, we've got to just badger God, ask him maybe 500 times, then maybe we can slowly twist his arm to do what we want for us. And again, that, that's not what God is like at all. Here's another uh, similar parallel. Jesus said to his disciples, so suppose one of you should go to a friend's house at midnight and say, friend, let me borrow three loaves of bread. A friend of mine who is on a trip has just come to my house and I don't have any food for him. And suppose your friend should answer from inside, don't bother me, the door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. Well, what then? I tell you that even if he will not get up and give you the bread because you are his friend, yet he will get up and give you everything you need because you are not ashamed to keep on asking. Okay, same kind of thing. But again, is God like the reluctant person in bed? Oh, it's this person again asking me, uh, for this again. No, I mean, again, God is not like that. That's not the point. Now, here's the more familiar part, and we often detach these words from the story. And so I say to you, ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For those who ask will receive, and those who seek will find, and the door will be opened to anyone who knocks. Would any of you who are fathers give your son a snake when he asks for a fish? Or would you give him a scorpion when he asks for an egg? As bad as you are, you know how to give good things to your children. Now notice, how much more? God is not like that, uh, that friend. How much more then will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Here's the other point I find really important. Um, we maybe read this, po this portion and say, well, ask and we'll receive. Uh, knock, the door will be opened. And uh, don't read on to see what are we actually to ask for. Ultimately, what does God want us to ask for? And it, the passage ends saying, how much more then will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Uh, wouldn't this suggest that when we ask, what are we really asking for? Ultimately, um, we're to ask for the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean to ask for the Holy Spirit? And uh, we'll come back to this in John, and I've mentioned it already, but... Uh, Jesus gave no doubt about the function of the Holy Spirit and what we're actually receiving when we receive the Holy Spirit. The Helper will come, the Spirit who reveals the truth about God. When the Spirit comes, what does he do? He reveals the truth about God. He'll lead you into all the truth, the truth about God. And I will ask the Father, he will give you another Helper who will stay with you forever. He's the Spirit who reveals the truth about God. I mean, it's so redundant here. And so it would suggest to me that above and beyond everything else, what God wants us to search for, to desire for, and what he promises to give us, and what is at the core of our religion, is the truth about God. Okay, last point. And uh, this is probably the most difficult parable um, of all, and that is the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which is found only in the book of Luke. Um, and as many of you know, I mean descriptions of hell and what happens after death. Uh, for many, this is the key story that nails it down about what happens. We go to burning flames, or some do and some don't. And um, um, we will spend a lot of time talking about the fire. We talked about it last year. I think it's such an important subject. Um, maybe when we come to Revelation, the lake of fire, we'll talk about this. Okay, it's a huge subject, but now let's deal with the rich man and Lazarus. And let's just try to understand and I think the key point for this story is to understand that Jesus told five parables. The rich man and Lazarus is the last, and it's told to the same group of people. Notice the setting. One day when many tax collectors and other outcasts 
came to listen to Jesus, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law started grumbling. This man welcomes outcasts and even eats with them. I remember how outraged they were that Jesus would do that. And so Jesus told them this parable. This is how he started. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. What do you do? You leave the other 99 sheep in the pasture and go looking for the one that got lost until you find it. Now, if you were a Pharisee standing there, miffed at Jesus for hanging out with the outcasts of society, and he told you this parable, uh, would you, in your mind, lump yourself with the 99 sheep or with the lost, outcast sheep? You would think, hey, I'm the 99, right? Um, and Because Jesus is talking about going out after the outcast, those uh, who perhaps have uh, not accepted the faith. Now, what is the reality? Are the Pharisees the outcasts or are they the ones on the inside? Now, the reality is actually the opposite. But notice, in their mind, they're thinking, okay, we're the 99 sheep. And I think the point of this parable is to say, isn't it a good thing to go out and get the lost sheep? Shouldn't it have stimulated something uh, good within them? Well, Jesus would say, when you find it, you're so happy, and shouldn't you be so happy that these people are coming to the kingdom? You're so happy that you put it on your shoulders and carry it back home. Then you call your friends and neighbors together and say to them, I am so happy I found my lost sheep. Let us celebrate. In the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 respectable people like all of you who do not need to repent. Okay, isn't this a very kind way? of Jesus saying, isn't it a good thing to go out and find that lost sheep, you good 99 people? Well, then he would go on and tell another parable. Or suppose a woman who has 10 silver coins loses one of them. What does she do? She lights a lamp, sweeps her house, and looks carefully everywhere until she finds it. It's kind of interesting, the first parable, the the sheep knows it's lost, right? The, The coin doesn't even know it's lost. But yet God is is looking out for those people too. And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says to them, I am so happy I found the coin I lost. Let us celebrate. In the same way, I tell you, be like that. The angels of God rejoice over one sinner who repents. All right, now did they respond? Did they say, you know what? It actually is right to go out and try to win back the outcasts of society. Uh, Well, I don't think they got it because Jesus had to go on and tell a third parable. Notice, he went on to say, this is the same setting, goes on to tell a third parable, the parable of the prodigal son. There was once a man who had two sons. The younger one said to him, Father, give me my share of the property now. So the man divided his property between his two sons. After a few days, the younger son sold his part of the property and left home with the money. He went to a country far away where he wasted his money in reckless living. He spent everything he had, and then a severe famine spread over that country, and he was left without a thing. So he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him out to his farm to take care of the pigs. He wished he could fill himself with the bean pods the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything to eat. At last he came to his senses and said, All my father's hired workers have more than they can eat, and here I am about to starve. I will get up and go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against God and against you. I am no longer fit to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired workers. Uh, Did he have a real good picture of his father? Well, not really, but at least he is headed home. And so here's, uh, of course, the very moving part of the story. So he got up and started back to his father 
And notice, he was still a long way from home when his father saw him. I mean, when that suggests his father is, is looking for him. Notice he didn't go out and pull him out of the pig pen, okay, because he needed the experience of that pig pen to get him turned around. Okay, but, but God here, the Father, is eagerly looking down that road. His heart was filled with pity, and he ran, threw his arms around his son, and kissed him. Father, the son said, I have sinned against God and against you. I am no longer fit to be called your son. You get the impression he's going to go into a long uh, uh, repentance here. But the father cuts him off. But the father called to his servants, Hurry, he said, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. Then go get the prized calf and kill it and let us celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's been found. And so the feasting began. So again, we have three stories of a sheep, the one sheep that is found, great rejoicing, a coin that is found, great rejoicing. Now the son comes back, great rejoicing, but now there's a twist, okay, because there's a brother. And again, these Pharisees are to understand something real important here. In the meantime, the older son was out in the field. On his way back, when he came close to the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come back home, the servant answered, and your father has killed the prize calf because he got him back safe and sound. And notice, the older brother was so angry, just like those Pharisees, that he would not go into the house. So his father came out and begged him to come in. But he spoke back to his father. And again, this is exactly the attitude of the Pharisees. Look, all these years I have worked for you like a slave and have never disobeyed your orders. I mean, what were the Pharisees doing? They had created lists upon lists upon lists to obey, working like a slave. Okay, and now they see Jesus welcoming all these people into the kingdom and uh, they are extremely upset about it. What have you given me? I mean, look at the Roman occupation. What have you done for us? What has God done for us? Not even a goat for me to have a feast with my friends. But this son of yours wasted all your property on prostitutes, and when he comes back home, you kill the prized calf for him? My son, the father answered, you are always here with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be happy because your brother was dead, and now he is alive. He was lost, but now he has been found. Again, the, the stories are becoming more pointed. And now directed exactly towards the, uh, the incredibly arrogant, condescending attitude of the Pharisees. Certainly they saw themselves as the older brother in this story. Okay, is that enough? Should Jesus stop? Well, he go, went on to, to tell a fourth parable, and uh, this is a really complex, difficult parable, um, which uh, you can read in Luke. It's, it's uh, interpreted various ways about the shrewd manager, and uh, let me just read Jesus' conclusion after telling the parable. He said, No servant can be the slave of two masters. Such a slave will hate one and love the other, or be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And wasn't there, that their preoccupation with money? And then, when the Pharisees heard all this, notice they're still there, they made fun of Jesus because they loved money. Okay, he is really... Uh, putting the, uh, the spotlight on them. He is revealing their real passion is for money, for power. They're exposed. Okay, so the question is, here he's told these four parables. Um, should he stop? I mean, hasn't he gone far enough? Uh, but notice 
how Jesus would go on. Jesus said to them, You are the ones who make yourselves look right in other people's sight, but God knows your hearts, for the things that are considered of great value by people are worth nothing in God's sight. The law of Moses and the writings of the prophets were in effect up to the time of John the Baptist. Since then, the good news about the kingdom of God is being told, and everyone forces their way in. That is, except for you guys. And so... Um, Jesus is saying, look at these people, outcasts of society, they love the good news about the kingdom. Uh, what's wrong with you guys? And so then he would go on to tell the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which I think can only be understood if we're, if we're putting it in this context. There was once a rich man. And again, who would the Pharisees identify themselves with? The rich man. Um, I mean, by their thinking, if you're rich, you're blessed by God. And uh, that was the mindset. There was once a rich man who dressed in the most expensive clothes and lived in great luxury every day. There was also a poor man. Again, by definition, if you're poor, you're cursed by God. There was a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who used to be brought to the rich man's door, hoping to eat the bits of food that fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the feast in heaven. And here I imagine a gasp went out because the poor man with sores went to Abraham's bosom. Well, that's exactly the opposite. The rich man is obviously going there. But the rich man died and was buried. And in Hades, what? Where he was in great pain, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. So it is completely twisted from what they were expecting. And again, even the disciples were under this delusion. Uh, remember when the disciples saw a blind man and they said, um, hmm, who sinned, this man or his, uh, or his parents? Again, if you're sick, if you're poor, you're cursed by God. If you're rich, you're blessed by God, you're going to heaven. That was the mindset. And so the man called out, Father Abraham, take pity on me and send Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and cool off my tongue because I am in great pain in this fire. But Abraham said, Remember, my son, that in your lifetime you were given all the good things while Lazarus got all the bad things, but now he is enjoying himself here while you are in pain. Besides all that, there is a deep pit lying between us so that those who want to cross over from here to you cannot do so, nor can anyone cross over to us from where you are. The rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, where I have five brothers. Let him go and warn them, so that they, at least, will not come to this place of pain. Abraham said, Your brothers have Moses and the prophets to warn them. Your brothers should listen to what they say. And the rich man answered, That is not enough, Father Abraham. But notice, if someone were to rise from death and go to them, then they would turn from their sins. Now, that would surely convince them. If someone named Lazarus, perhaps, were to rise from death, then that would convince them. But Abraham said, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone were to rise from death. Okay, so again, uh, how do we interpret this? Is it a parable? Are we to interpret every aspect of this literally? And um, what is really interesting, when you look at the writings of Josephus and he would write about, here was their understanding of what happened at death. And just tell me if this sounds familiar to this, the parable. Well, there I gave it away. My interpretation, a parable, the rich man and Lazarus. Listen to the current uh, religious understanding that this place 
of special custody for souls in which angels are appointed as guardians to them who distribute to them temporary punishments agreeable to everyone's behavior and manners. Angels are appointed over them to reproach them and threaten them with their terrible looks and to thrust them still downwards. Now these angels are set over these souls, drag them into the neighborhood of hell itself. I mean, can you understand why they were trying so hard to obey? They didn't want to go to this place. They do not stand clear of the hot vapor itself, but when they have a near view of the spectacle, as of a terrible and exceeding great prospect of fire, they are struck with a fearful expectation of future judgment and, in effect, punished thereby. And as the description goes on, they go to a lake of unquenchable fire, prepared for a day aforedetermined by God, in which one righteous sentence will be deservedly passed upon all men. And this is described as an everlasting punishment. By contrast, where do the good go? They're led with hymns sung by angels to a place where they wait for the rest and eternal life in heaven, which is to succeed this region, this place we call the bosom of Abraham. Again, Jesus told a story that fit perfectly for their understanding of things. They, the righteous go to the bosom of Abraham at death. The, the wicked go to a place of fire. And notice, there is a chasm. Again, how well does this fit? A chasm, deep and large, fixed between them, insomuch that a just man that hath compassion upon them cannot be admitted, nor can one that is unjust, if he were bold enough to attempt it, pass over it. And finally, this place of fire, to those belong unquenchable fire, and that without end, and certain, fiery worm never dying, and not destroying the body, but continuing its eruption of the body with never ceasing grief. Neither will sleep give ease to these men, nor will the night afford them comfort. Death will not free them from punishment. So again, is Jesus reinforcing this belief by telling a parable that fit with their understanding of things? Well, uh, I think there are some problems with a literal interpretation. Let me just list a few in, in the last few minutes remaining. First of all, uh, do we interpret this literally? Do we believe that uh, the righteous go to Abraham's bosom uh, at death? Is that view supported by scripture? Um, is there a chasm between? Will we, we be able to communicate with people who are writhing in the flames and discussing back and forth? Um, is that view supported by the entirety of scripture? And again, if uh, the soul is apart from the body at death, um, is the tongue literal here? Would you ask for a drop of water? Why not ask for a bucket of water to cool the tongue? Uh, we interpret all these things literally. And uh, a kind of a technical point, but this is the only case in the Bible where the Greek word Hades is associated with any punishment. Again, that was, that was their mindset. I think this fits much better, better as a parable. The previous four stories were clearly parables. And again, who is the rich man? Rich people are blessed. Pharisees, as they're listening to the story, they're identifying with the rich man. Who is Lazarus? Again, all these stories are pointing towards outcasts of society and certainly Lazarus with sores, poor. Uh, they would identify with the outcasts of society that Jesus is hanging out with. Again, it fits with the, the rest of the stories that are being told. Okay, and here's a critical point. A parable is not for making 50 points of doctrine. A parable is to make one or two points, not a long list of uh, theological beliefs. What's the point of this parable. Notice the description here where 
The rich man would say, that's not enough, Father Abraham. But if someone were to rise from death and go to them, then they would turn from their sins. But Abraham said, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone were to rise from death. And do you think Jesus' choice of the word Lazarus is uh, coincidental in this story? Just uh, picked it out of the air, could have chosen any other name. I mean, what was the crowning miracle of Jesus? Was it not raising Lazarus from death? How do we know he was dead? And they go to roll away the stone. Be careful, he stinks. I mean, he was really dead. Three days in the tomb. And so we read the description that after he raised Lazarus, from that day on, the Jewish authorities made plans to kill Jesus. I mean, just raising a man dead in the tomb for three days? The chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus too because on his account many Jews were rejecting them and believing in Jesus. So the parable really fit for what actually happened um, and they did reject Jesus even despite the evidence of that miracle. Okay, and why did Jesus tell this story? Um, I think, again, we talked about providing evidence, providing evidence. I mean, this story is packed with evidence and if you're a Pharisee, maybe, who knows, after the resurrection of Lazarus, Maybe some of them were there and heard him tell the story of the rich man and Lazarus and said, you know what, that fits for us perfectly. Maybe some of them responded to that story. Uh, last verse, which I think fits and I think explains why Jesus would use these kinds of methods. These are Paul's words. Paul would say, while working with the Jews, I live like a Jew in order to win them, even though I myself am not subject to the law of Moses. I live as though I were when working with those who are in order to win them. In the same way, when working with Gentiles, I live like a Gentile, outside the Jewish law, in order to win Gentiles. This does not mean that I don't obey God's law. I am really under Christ's law. Among the weak in faith, I become weak like one of them, in order to win them. So I become all things to all people, that I may save some of them by whatever means are possible. So I think these are the methods of Jesus. He told a parable that fit a false understanding of what happened at death. Took a risk, certainly, by telling a story like that, but I think you have to speak a language that people can understand. He spoke a language that they could understand. And I like to think that perhaps some of those people standing there, as they reviewed that evidence from the story, and as time passed, and they saw Lazarus resurrected, and Jesus resurrected from a tomb, that that was the evidence that they needed to eventually uh, respond to Jesus and, and become his disciple. Okay, let's pray. Father, each one of us here have questions. Each one of us have doubts about certain things. Um, certainly it appeals to us, though, that uh, you do want to answer our questions. You do want to provide the evidence. So please help us to ask the questions that are really on our heart. And ultimately, may we become settled into what you are like in character. May the truth that you came to reveal on this earth uh, become settled in each one of us. In your name we pray. Amen.